So one of my favorite shows is 24. Now, I like the new one, but I really like the old one, you know. Because first of all, it had Jack Bauer. And Jack Bauer is just an awesome counter-terrorist name, right? And, and, and there, can, there can be other versions of Jack Bauer, but never again is there going to be Jack Bauer. And what I liked about Jack is Jack always found himself in the middle of impossible situations. So on this end of town, you would have a nuclear crisis as a group of terrorists are, are preparing to cause a, a power plant to melt down and wipe out the whole state of California. And then on the other end of town, you would have uh, his daughter that had been kidnapped by said terrorists and are holding him hostage. And then on the other end of the United States, there would be a threat against the president's life. And all of it boiled down to what is Jack going to do? How is Jack going to come through? How is Jack going to rescue the power plant and help his daughter and make sure that the president is safe? And so you see Jack in the midst of this impossible situation and you're just kind of hanging on the edge of your seat just trying to see how in the world Bauer's going to figure it out this time. But you know, for a lot of us as we live the Christian life, it sometimes feels, I in fact believe it does feel, as though God, as we follow Christ, is calling us to live a Jack Bauer kind of life, right? Like, you get an invitation to go on a mission trip, and the Lord's been stirring in your heart, and you really want to go, and you really want to be a part of it, but you got young kids at home, like, what's going to go on with them? And then your bank account, like your, your savings account, you're saying, like, what savings account, Right? And then you've got a job. How in the world are you going to get time away from the job? And you feel like the Lord has burdened you to, to reach out and to minister to, to teenagers. And so you're trying to figure out what that looks like and whether or not they're going to like you, accept you, listen to you. If you're going to ruin their life with some bad advice that you might have. Then you got your own kids. you got to disciple those kids, right? Like you got to raise them up in the ways of the Lord so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. Oh, and by the way, you've got your own faith. Your own faith, which is so frail sometimes, isn't it? You have your own faith, and you're trying to figure it out yourself, like how you're following Jesus, and then you got all these other moving parts in your life, and it just feels impossible, doesn't it? It feels overwhelming. It feels like the Lord, in some way, is calling you to be omnipotent and omniscient. It feels like God is calling you in some way to be ever-present, and you're thinking, man, there's just one of me. There's just one of me. What if I told you this morning that the intention of the Christian life is to live that which is impossible? What if I told you that the intention of the Christian life, the intention of the life that Jesus is calling you to, is he is intentionally calling you to a life that is impossible? This morning I think we're going to see the disciples put in a position of impossibility. That Jesus is going to ask something from them that feels irrational, it feels implausible, it feels impossible. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to finish out chapter 15 this week. And don't doze on me because this is going to sound familiar, okay? This is going to sound familiar. So, don't, so, so stay with me. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that, alright? Stay with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 32. Would you stand with me 
as we prepare to read God's word together. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, God's word says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do we have? How many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. You may... Uh, may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seating. Man, you know, you'd think you'd say something every week. You'd kind of just roll with it, wouldn't you? So we come into to Matthew chapter 15, and like, if you zone out for just a second, and you kind of come in mid-passage uh, mid there, you're thinking, wait, we've already heard this story, man. We already heard the sermon on the feeding of the, fa of the thousands with the fish. We've already heard all of that, preacher. Get some, get some new material. Let's move on. But this is a second occurrence. In chapter, chapter 14, we have Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. And now in chapter 15, we have him feeding 4,000 men plus women and children. And it does seem very striking. That, uh, 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 beside just a couple of details, these are essentially the same story. And I think Matthew is recording it, and I believe that Jesus is doing it for that in, in exact reason. He wants us to have these stories beside themselves so that we can learn something, so that we can see something. See, there are two major differences between the feeding of the thousands in chapter 15 and the feeding of the thousands in chapter 14. In chapter 14, Jesus is wrapping up his ministry in Galilee. Jesus has been ministering among his people. He's been ministering among the Jews. And so he performs miracles and he heals them and he preaches to them and he teaches them. When they're hungry, miraculously, he takes five fish and, uh, or five loaves of bread and two fish and he, and he feeds 20,000 some odd people out there. And this is what we expect from him. This is what we expect from him because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the incarnate version of the God of Israel. And so he comes, and this is exactly where we expect him to be, doing exactly what we expect him to do among the people that we expect Jesus to walk among. But then comes chapter 15. Then comes chapter 15. Do you remember last week, we're talking about a Canaanite woman. A woman that is a descendant of the enemies of God, the sworn enemies of God, the historical enemies of God. He's not just a Gentile, but a Canaanite in a region of Tyre and Sidon, a place that is famously worthy of the, of the judgment of God. Now, Mark tells us in his account of Mark, in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is in a place called the Decapolis, which is on the, a region on the Sea of Galilee, which is largely a place where Canaanite, Gentile people live. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does the exact same thing. The exact same thing. Now, this is huge. 
Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. To eat, with a, for a Jewish person to eat a meal with a Gentile person is to make them unclean. For a Jewish person to touch a Gentile person is to make them unclean. And what do we see in Christ? Jesus is not just walking past them. Jesus is not just kind of sharing a road with them. Jesus is touching their lepers and making them well. Jesus is touching their blind and allowing them to see. Jesus is touching their ears and allowing them to hear. Not only is Jesus sharing a meal with the Gentiles, but Jesus himself, by the divine and sovereign power of God, is feeding the Gentiles miraculously. That he is caring for the Gentile people just as he cared for the Jewish people. He is feeding the Gentile people just as he fed the Jewish people. And what does it say at the end of the passage? It says that they are worshiping the God of Israel. That he has not been their God. They have been pagan followers. They have been pagan worshipers. But having seen Christ and the compassion of Christ and the kindness of Christ and the miracles of Christ and the divine power of Christ, that they are all praising the God of Israel, that he must in fact be the true God. You see, brothers and sisters, there's, some, there's a shift happening. Jesus is opening our eyes to the reality that the gospel is going to the world. The gospel is going to the nations. In fact, the gospel is going in pursuit of me and in pursuit of you, in pursuit of our little ones. The gospel is going in pursuit of Africa and Asia and Europe. The gospel is going in pursuit of the new land in America that doesn't even exist on a map yet. The gospel is going forward because as the kingdom of God advances, it includes Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean. That in Christ Jesus all will be made well, all will be made clean. See, one of the things that I love about the kingdom of God, and I love the kingdom of God, is I love the fact that the kingdom of God shrinks the size of the world. Some of you in conversations with me, I've given testimony to that. Right now, I could get on a plane, and I could fly 17 hours to the other side of the world. I could walk out of a, out of a plane, down the tarmac, or, or down the down the, uh, past the luggage in Johannesburg, South Africa, and waiting for me right there will be this giant black African man who would throw his arms around me and say, Brother, brother, how are my nieces doing at your house? Oh, my, yours on this side are very well. And I love that. I love that. That right now in Asia are people that I've never met and yet have everything in common with them. That right now in Russia are people that can hardly speak out publicly the name of Jesus that I have everything in common with. And that I can go and I can, I can hug them and I have family there. I have family there. Because the kingdom of God has shrunk the world. And what this does is it gives us a glimpse into a greater banquet that is to come. It gives us a glimpse into a greater feast that is to come. You know, in Matthew 14, the Jews are eating over here. Jesus is feeding them. Jesus is feeding them miraculously, but they're eating over here. 
And then in Matthew 15, the Gentiles, Jesus is feeding them. Jesus is feeding them miraculously, but they're eating over here. But brothers and sisters, there is a day coming in which there will be a greater feast. There is a day coming in which a great banquet table will be laid out. Jesus at its head. The Jews and the Gentiles side by side. The prostitutes will be eating with Abraham. The, the, the tax collector will be dining with Isaac. The Gentile and the Canaanite sitting right beside Jacob. Russians will be there and Americans will be there and Africans will be there and Asians will be there. And they will all be gathered around the banquet table of the Lamb singing with the most beautiful choir that you've ever imagined in total unity. I, I picture it with, with completely different accents saying, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain that has brought us together to miraculously feast at his table. And so I think what Jesus is teaching his disciples is Jesus is showing that once the resurrection has come and the spirit has descended, he is not sending them to the ends of Jerusalem. He is sending them to the ends of the earth. He is not sending them to go and to find the clean. He is sending them to find every sin-condemned sinner that they might be raised to life in Christ Jesus. He is showing them that it is the mission of the gospel. It is the mission of the kingdom of God to spend your life that you might add to the banquet. Brothers and sisters, that's what he's calling us to. That's what he's calling every single one of us to. Jesus is calling us to spend our lives that we might add to the banquet. Jesus is calling us to spend our lives now, to work ourselves thin now by his grace, by his power, that at the banquet our neighbor might be there. That at the banquet the co-worker might be there. That at the banquet your teammate might be there. That at the banquet, there will be people there that don't even speak your language. And they're there because of your life spent for the gospel. Your life going for the gospel. That the kingdom of God might be expanded to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, who's going to be at the banquet because of you? Who's going to be at the banquet because of you? Now I say that knowing that you have no power to save a man. I say that knowing you have no power to save a child. I say that saying, knowing you have no power to save an African or an Asian or a neighbor or a coworker. I say that because you are exactly the kind of person that God uses to deliver his people from hell. You are exactly the kind of person that God uses to manifest his glory to the ends of the earth. You are exactly the kind of people that God uses to bring people to the banquet that they might feast miraculously at his side. Who will be at the banquet because of you? You know, there's a lot happening in the passage here. But we should not miss, we should not read it and miss the image of the goodness of Christ that it gives to us. I want you to think about the goodness that we see in the big picture here. 
All right, so, so there's, there's, this is reminiscent in some way of the Sermon on the Mount because you have Jesus, he's going, and he's going up onto a mountain, and great crowds are coming to him. Now, it says here that, they're, that he's healing them, and he's healing as many as they bring, but we also know that over the course of three days, Jesus most likely is not just healing, but he is preaching, and he is teaching, and he is talking. He is telling them about the kingdom of God. He is telling them how they can come to him and, and be saved. He is, he is opening up the kingdom of God to the Gentiles that they might be able to come. And in the big picture, we just see his goodness, don't we? As he takes the leper who is condemned and terminally ill, and he says, you have been well, go and sin no more. As we see that he takes the, the mute and the deaf and the blind, and he says, go and speak the truth of the gospel. Go and hear the good news. Go and see all that God has done. And you know, like, if it stopped right there, all of us would say, Jesus is good. If all we had was the miraculous that Jesus had done, we would say, Jesus is good. If all we knew about were those that Jesus saved and delivered, we would say, Jesus is good. If Jesus ended all of this and he said, peace be with you, go my beloved and have a joyful trip home, all of us would say, amen, Jesus is good. But I don't want us just to stay up here in the big picture. I want you to see the little picture here. In the details, in the minutia of the story. Jesus is not just worried about their leprosy. Jesus is not just worried about their blindness. Jesus is not just worried about their sin, though that is supreme. Jesus is worried about their blood sugar. You see it? Jesus is worried about their blood sugar. They've been teaching for three days. They've had hardly any food. Perhaps they brought rations with them. And the preaching and the teaching was so that they couldn't imagine themselves leading. And they've run out. And so now their, their blood sugar's on the edge. And Jesus said, we can't send them home yet. I have compassion on the crowd. I don't want them to go and faint on the way and hit their heads on a rock. Is Jesus not good? Is Jesus not good? Jesus doesn't just care about the big stuff. Jesus cares about the finest details of the lives of his people. He cares about the finest details, the smallest issues, the lightest burdens. Jesus cares about them all. This was illustrated to me a few months ago. So before I went to Africa, I was helping some friends move, right? And, you know, that's always a blessing, right, when, when you get to help move. Uh, there's nothing more fun than carrying, you know, like a, a dresser, right, downstairs and bending. Like, that's a blessing, right? Amen. And so I was helping some friends move, and they had this recliner, and it was, it was quite nice. And they didn't have a place for it in their new home, and so we were carrying it, and we were moving it down into the basement garage. And my friend said, well, do you know of anybody that might be interested in buying a recliner? And I said, well, I might be interested. How much would you, how much would you like for it? He said, oh, you want this? You want this? Well, you can just have it. You, you just have it and, and take it home. I thought, man, it's good to have a friend, you know? Like, in the big picture, that's good and that's encouraging. But you all know what happened to me in Africa, right? I went to Africa and I got sick and I had the surgery. And do you know where I spent six weeks? Sitting in that chair. 
couldn't get up, couldn't move. And I was about two weeks in. And y'all, I've gotten all, my wife don't even know who I am. I've gotten all emotional. You know, like life changing, like, like all emotional. And I'm sitting there, I got tears coming down my face. And I'm like, he gave me a chair. He gave me a chair. God was ahead of this with me. Not only did he spare me my life, not only did he make it so that I'm going to be able to run and play with my kids, not only am I going to hit a golf ball again, God gave me a chair while I wait. God gave me a chair to sit in that's brand new. Have you ever praised God for a chair before? You see, the Lord cares about the smallest details of our lives. Nothing is beyond him. Nothing is too minute for him. Nothing is too small for him. The Lord cares about the details. Have you ever heard or read the plans to the ark? He doesn't say go build a big boat. He says go and build it this big. Use boards like this. Go this high. He gives the exact measurements of the boat. We think in our minds that God is in the big picture and God is working out the story of redemption. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that God is so sovereign and God is so all-knowing and omniscient that God knows the smallest detail and he is not overwhelmed by any of it. Bring your smallest burdens to the Lord this morning. Bring your smallest burdens to the Lord this morning. Are you in a spat with your spouse? Bring it to the Lord this morning. Do you have a, a difficult test this week? Bring it to the Lord this morning. Are you having trouble memorizing a passage of scripture? Bring it to the Lord this morning. Are you overwhelmed? Do you have a headache in a big meeting in the same day? Bring it to the Lord that day. You are his child. And he cares about the smallest, most minute details of your life. We often say that nothing is too big for God. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, there is nothing too tiny either. You can bring all of the small things to Jesus because Jesus is good. Jesus is good. Caring about the crowd, Jesus tells his disciples that he wants to feed them. And the response of the disciples is really startling, isn't it? It's startling. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. Like, I want to help the crowd. The, the word compassion there means that there is a, there is a knot in Jesus' stomach. There is, there is, there is a, a pain in Jesus' gut that he so is anxious to, to help the crowd and to make them okay, to make sure their blood sugar is properly adjusted, right? And so he looks to his disciples and he says, let's, let's feed the crowd. And the disciples look back at him and they say, Yo, Jesus, we're in the Decapolis here, man. You're sitting on a mountain. Do you see Cracker Barrel? Do you see Cracker Barrel? There's not even a rallies here, man. You can't even go buy some crystals here. There's not even a Dollar General. And if there's not a Dollar General, ain't nothing going to survive here. And, and, and Jesus, have you taken a glance at the old treasury? You know, you keep getting into fights with the Pharisees. Guess what? Our funds are running dry, man. What do you want us to do? And all of that sounds reasonable until you remember what had just happened in chapter 14, right? Until you remember exactly, until you remember what has happened in chapter 14. This is on the slate. Look, look, it's your Bibles. You should see it on chapter 14 and chapter 15. There's two different headings. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Like you can look and in one open book see both headlines, right? These are right beside each other. 
Matthew's writing this out. And I think Matthew's like, how foolish was I? How dumb was I? Like, all of it seems plausible that there's no way to feed them, except that Jesus literally just did that. He just did it. He just fed more people with less food. Jesus had just performed, in the, in the quantitative sense, a greater miracle. And they're looking at Jesus like, well, Jesus, what are we going to do, man? How's this going to work out? So, some commentators say that this is because the, the, uh, the Jewish disciples don't expect that Jesus is going to feed the Gentile crowd. Except that, that literally just happened too. Jesus had just delivered the daughter of the Canaanite woman. Jesus had just commended the fate of this Gentile woman. How easily we forget the faithfulness of God. How easily we forget the faithfulness of God. I wonder how Matthew felt as he was writing the story down and remembering his account. And literally just a few paragraphs after he feeds the 5,000, he's a part of the crew asking Jesus, how's this going to work? You know, I believe on the final day, as we stand before the judgment, that there will be a book of our life laid open. And I wonder if our book is going to read like this. I was in my sin. I had no hope. I was desperate, afraid of dying, afraid to sleep. But God did something miraculous. And then I was anxious and worried and falling into unbelieving, and God did something miraculous. And then I got stressed out and became anxious and depressed and began to think, oh God, why won't you listen to me? And then God did something miraculous. And again and again and again, I fall into unbelief. And again and again and again, God does that which is miraculous. Brothers, that's not Matthew's story. That's my story. That's not Matthew's story. That's my story. That's the, that's the biography of my life. That's my memoirs. That's my journal entries. That's what I sound like. God, I know you have done great things then, but I'm terrified right now. God, I know that you have delivered me from far greater, but Lord, how is this going to work out? Over and again, I fall into unbelief. Over and again, I fall into anxiety. And over and again, God shows up and is faithful and mighty and powerful. You see, in the... In the People of Israel throughout the Old Testament, often what they would do is when God supernaturally delivered them or protected them or provided for them, they would take and they would stack up a big pile of rocks. And they would stack up that pile of rocks that every generation that come after that might go back and remember the Lord was faithful in that day and the Lord will be faithful in our day. The Lord delivered his people in that day and from that enemy and with that miracle. And the Lord will deliver us today from our enemy and with a new miracle. Brothers and sisters, are you struggling today? Are you falling into unbelief today? Are you feeling overwhelmed today? Well, if you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, I ask you to go back and look at the piles of rocks in your life. Go back and remember the faithfulness of God Go back and remember how he has delivered you time and again. Go back and remember the testimonies that you've shared. 
Go back and remember the the prayers that you've offered that have been answered for you. Go back and look at the piles of rocks in your life and remember that if God was faithful then, he will be no less faithful now. That you can see clearly back and you may not be able to see clearly forward, but what you can be is assured that God's past faithfulness assures his future faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, look back with me at the piles of rocks in your life. See, the issue for the disciples was not how little food that they had. The issue for the disciples was how little faith they had. It was not that they didn't have enough fish and that they didn't have enough bread. It's that they didn't have enough confidence and faith and trust in the power and goodness of Jesus Christ. The Canaanite woman had come whose faith was commended and she had persisted. Jesus had seemingly even even rejected her and yet she had persisted in coming to Jesus again and again. The disciples have already witnessed a greater miracle than she could have ever comprehended at the time. And they come to Jesus and say, how is this going to work? How is this going to come together? They looked at their situation and they saw it as being impossible. They looked at their situation and they saw it as being irrational and illogical. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that if you follow after Jesus, you will follow him right into the middle of impossible. You will follow him right into the middle of impossible. I know sometimes I can be a little bit intense in the old old preaching game, you know. And I know sometimes that you guys hear and you think, this guy is crazy. This guy is crazy. Like what padded room did we find our preacher in? Like, go take him back to the coloring books because the stuff he's talking about is crazy. And I hope that the things that I preach to you are just as crazy as telling you to go and to feed thousands of people with a few bread and fish. Because what we see again and again in the Bible is that if you follow Jesus, you're going to follow him right into the middle of crazy. You're going to follow him right into the middle of the impossible. That yes, Jesus may call you to go into the middle of North Korea where you have to be under the threat of working in a work camp the rest of your life. Jesus may call you you to live a life with ALS or early onset dementia or terminal cancer and to do it so with joy and contentment and peace. Jesus may call you to live with an unbelieving spouse that is hostile towards your faith and mocks your faith and insults your faith and asks you to persevere and remain steadfast all while rejoicing. Jesus may call you to bring foster children into your home when you are way past your child-rearing years. Jesus may call you to use your retirement to go to the edges of the earth for his gospel and to learn a new language and to reach a new people. Jesus may call you to do that which is impossible but what we see right here is there where Jesus calls you he supplies you he supplies you that is the most fundamental and basic element of the Christian life that where Jesus calls Jesus supplies Jesus was calling the disciples to feed the crowd, but Jesus was going to supply the food. Jesus was going to supply the bread. Jesus was going to supply the miraculous to carry through what he called them to do in the midst of that which is impossible. Is the Christian life terrifying? Without Jesus, absolutely. Is the Christian life impossible? Without Jesus, absolutely. Is the Christian life irrational without Jesus? Absolutely. 
but with Christ, in Christ, you have already been secured. In Christ, the impossible has already been accomplished. In Christ, the, the impossible has already been delivered. And so in visual theology right now, in our Sunday school classes, we're going through visual theology. In the last two weeks, you guys have talked a lot about identity. Your identity in Christ. Who you are in Jesus. And one of the passages that is referenced is John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus says that, that I am the vine and you are the branch. Abide in me. Abide in me. That we are one, that, that I am the life giver and you are the dependent. But being bound together, being united together because you are in, in me and I am in you, that you will have life and strength and the ability to press on in the midst of whatever. You see, all of that is, is in view here. That when Jesus calls you to adopt and you can't really figure out how that's going to work out, and when Jesus calls you to go and, and be a pastor and a preacher and you, don't, you think, Man, I don't even speak clear. I didn't either, brother. <laughs> when, when, when Jesus calls you to bring in a, a, a foster family, a foster kids into your home, and you're like, like I, don't, I'm, I don't even know that I still got that in me anymore. Like, when Jesus asks you to, to fund a missionary overseas, it's like when a spring tells a river to flow. You understand what I'm saying? It's like when a spring tells a river to flow. The spring is bubbling out of the ground, pouring millions of gallons of water every day, every second. And it's telling the river, just go. Just go to the Gulf of Mexico. Just, just flow. You just, you just keep flowing. I'm going to keep sending. I'm going to keep supplying. The river doesn't look back to the spring and say, well, I don't really know what I should do here. I don't really know how the, how the next minute worth of water is going to come. The river just says, I'm just going to keep flowing. You keep supplying. You keep sending. I'll keep flowing. Do you understand that's how we are in Christ? That's how we are in Christ. You think, I'm on the edge of running out here. I'm on the edge of, of running out. I don't know how I'm going to get through tomorrow. I don't know how this is all going to come through. Jesus is saying, you just keep going, I'm going to keep sending. You keep going, I'm going to keep supplying. You keep following, I'll keep supplying. You just live moment by moment dependent on me that whatever I send you, whatever I ask you to do, I'm going to supply your need. Brothers and sisters, faith forms the building blocks of discipleship. Faith. Do you believe that Jesus is really trustworthy? Do you trust that Jesus will supply you wherever he calls you? Do you believe that Jesus will make the impossible possible and the implausible plausible? Do you trust that Jesus will supply because when your faith is in Christ, when your faith is in his faithfulness, when your faith is in his supply, then the impossible circumstances of your life do not create a crisis of faith, but an opportunity of faithfulness in which Christ Jesus can make manifest his glory and grace and power through you, a worthless vessel in the big scheme. Brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, are you ready, are you willing to run into the middle of the impossible this morning? I ask you again, are you ready, are you willing 
to run into the middle of the impossible this morning? Are you willing to walk up to the edge of the Red Sea and say, part or I will die? Are you ready to step into the middle of the fiery furnace and say, come Lord Jesus or I will die? Are you ready to sleep with the lions, look the giant in the face? Are you ready, oh brothers and sisters, to go to the edge of impossible, to go to the edge of the wilderness and know Jericho will fall? Are you ready to go to the edges of the impossible, trusting in the supply of Christ Jesus that he will deliver you. Are you willing to run into the middle of the impossible? To do that which you cannot do. To have that which you cannot supply. To face that which you cannot defeat. This, this is discipleship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, come to you and we humble ourselves and we remember God we remember forgive us Lord for how often we have forgotten forgive us for how often our hearts race again forgive us how often we forget and fall into unbelief again but this morning oh Lord we remember we remember your compassion we remember your kindness we remember your faithfulness. We remember that you supply our needs, our strength, moment by moment, day by day. We remember that wherever you call us, you will supply us. Whatever you call us to do, you will do through us. We remember, oh Lord, our, your people, call us to the impossible. Call Iron City Baptist Church right into the middle of the impossible. Call each brother and sister right into the middle of the impossible that, Lord, revival might start here. We're seeing us lives submitted to you in faith. That not knowing what tomorrow holds, not knowing what's around the corner, just knowing that you will supply. We rest in you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, do you know the Lord? If you don't, would you come talk with me? Let, me? let me tell you how Christ Jesus can come in and deliver you from yours and supply the righteousness that, that you yourself cannot supply. This morning, Christian, have you been living in unbelief? Have you been living in fear and trembling? Have you been living wondering how this is going to happen or this is going to work? Have you been living, saying no to the impossible things that the Lord Jesus has called you to this morning? Would you come and bow before him and proclaim that you understand and know that he will supply and you will go? This morning, would you say, here I am, send me. If you're interested in membership, we would love for you to come and to talk about that. Come this morning, talk with me, apply for membership, and, or you can see me out in the lobby either way. Respond this morning, however the Lord has called you.